Being a Jew, awesome. Managing personal finances, not so awesome. Welcome to Kosher Money. And just like that, an entire season of Kosher Money is in the books. Zavi, did you think we would receive as much engagement as we did? No. And sorry, it's not anything against you and Yaakov, because I know you guys are amazing. But if I'm being honest with you, I, I was your first guest in the first episode. That's right. And looking back, I don't know that I would have been your first guest in your first episode if I would have realized the um, how many people would listen to it. And just, I mean, that's just me personally, um, you know, talking about that. But I, I really, it's blown my mind how many listeners and how many people have engaged and how many people have given feedback. Um, it's it's really been something I thought um, that we we really made a difference quicker than I thought we were going to. And you're being humble. The first episode was really great. It set the table for what we wanted to do here. I received, I have pages and pages of tips and ideas and thoughts about guests we should bring on, uh, topics we should cover. And I, I've told people, we're going to get to it, right? We can't get to everything in nine episodes. This is going to be episode 10 and put a nice bow on season one. Um, but yeah, I think we're, we're just scratching the surface, right? If you had to take a quick number, how many Orthodox Jews is this relevant to and how many people have we hit? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm always curious about how many Orthodox Jews there are in the world. They actually just did a census. I think they said there's 15.2 million Jews in the world. And I think maybe 10, 15% Orthodox, something like that, one and a half million. A lot of them live in Israel, where obviously the financial system is dramatically different. But if the, the numbers are real, let's say about 750,000 Orthodox Jews in outside of Israel. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say maybe you know 500,000 or so that, that, that should be listening to this, including kids. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, you can't see them in the video now, but we actually have kids that are our audience That's right. for, uh, for this episode. And, and, and these are kids that have... Um, listen to the episodes with their father. Right. Um, and so I think that this, it's actually really, it, it's, it's relevant to a, a lot of people and that's the feedback that we've been getting. And I think it's, it's worth, it bears mentioning. Um, we've had about a hundred thousand listens uh, and between YouTube and, and iTunes and Spotify um, to this, to these episodes. And that is, if you would have told me that before our first episode, I just, I wouldn't have believed it. It's wild. So we wanted to have you come down. He drove in from Baltimore just a few days here before Yom Kippur 2021. And we wanted to just go through the episodes one by one, talk about what stood out to us, um, possible questions that people sent in. Um, we're not going to be able to get to everything. Right. There was a ton of feedback. I mean, we probably can just do a recap episode for 120 minutes on tuition. Right. I think we struck a chord there, wouldn't you say? Yeah, that was, um, yeah, yes. Okay, so let's start. Um, one of our first episodes was actually with Naftali Horowitz. Naftali Horowitz has a great book. I bought it. It's called You Revealed. And you have some videos coming out that will support that through Living yes. Smarter Jewish, where we got a ton of questions after that episode. How do I invest? How do I open an IRA? How do I think about risk? Uh, I need to buy a home. Should I be investing? Should I be spending? Should I, can I get Naftali Harwitz's <laughs> cell phone number? No, you can't. Um, let's start with this one. He had said, or Naftali Harwitz said on, on his episode, that if you're going to invest $50,000, and you give that money over to some financial advisor, he can't be good, right? Someone who does this well needs to spend a million dollars. I think it was Ellie Fried who took uh, umbrage with umbrage, that statement. Good word, umbrage. Yes, Yaakov, you know that word? We're going to bring in Yaakov from behind the camera here. I, um, Harry Potter. Yes, right. <laughs> Close. That, that, we'll take that. Um, but yeah, he said that if you have, and, and uh, many people do, they do, you know, as much... Um, struggles as people have. There are many that do have a, a good amount of money in the bank and they want to know how and where to invest it. Is is that true, right? We had a back and forth. What, what's the uh, overall thought there? Yeah, so I, I'm, I'm not qualified to answer the question. Um, I, you know, investments and are, are not my specialty, but just to clarify what the what, what what people sort of took umbrage with. And it was it was one of those that really did generate some controversy. So Naftali said that, look, you know, anybody who anybody who will uh, talk to you for 50 or $100,000 can't possibly be good. And, you know, there's Ellie Fried, who's a, uh, you know, somebody in Lakewood who I strongly recommend people, 
you know, look up, I think his, it's Mula Maven, he calls himself, and Gelt Guide. He has a, a website with a lot of valuable things there. And he said, it's just not fair. He said that, you know, it, it, there are people who will talk to you, you know, at a quarter million, a half a million dollars. And he and we, it ended up getting, you know, where he posted on LinkedIn and, and people, a lot of people had feedback. And we ended up putting, putting Ellie in touch with Naftali and they spoke mm. it out. And, you know, I, I think what, what actually came out of that was something really valuable. And hopefully we'll talk a little bit more about Living Smarter Jewish throughout the episode and w- how we've sort of reformulated a lot of what we wanted to do as an organization because of the feedback from Kosher Money. But one of the things that we're doing is, you know, when you work with these financial advisors, very often there's a percentage off the top that they're going to be taking to work with you. And one of the things that we're doing as part of Living Smarter Jewish as that came out from this particular argument mm-hmm. or discussion about the value of financial advisors is we, we're getting a group of what we, what Naftali is vetting as good financial advisors that are going to be working with people, not for a percentage of their total overall um, amount that they're investing, but for, let's say, $250 an hour or $200 an hour, which sometimes all you need is just a few hours to get set up with an IRA, to get set up with an investment strategy. If you have $50,000 or $100,000 as a young couple, you don't necessarily need a financial advisor at 1% or 1.5%, whatever it is. And we're going to be setting people up at $200 an hour a few hours, get your IRA opened, get your, four, you know, whatever it is, set up your investment strategy, invest, and then come back every six months, a year, and, and have a conversation. And that, I think, is going to be a huge chesed and will be valuable to people. But you're right, that was definitely one of the controversies from Naftali's episode. I love that. And people would probably be more open to it knowing that going in, their total cost here is $400 exactly. versus the unknown 1%. And exactly. even though had they hooked up with a financial advisor and given given them fifty seventy five thousand dollars, I spoke to someone. He invested, I think, about seventy five thousand dollars over the last three years. And I asked him to ask his financial advisor how much he's up to. He said it's now at one ten. Right. So he's beaten inflation. He's he's done well. But going in, had he known that hey, there was an option through Living Smarter Jewish that he can spend a total of four hundred dollars and get to where he needs to go, because there's not a lot of you know. Naftali always says that there's not a lot of you know. You set it and forget it. You don't yep. have to be involved on a day-to-day basis if exactly. you're not stock trading. So that's very interesting. Ellie Fried also pointed out, because Rebbe Hauer, who was in um, episode two, and we'll get back to the investment side of things, but Rebbe Hauer and Reb Naftali Horowitz had a little bit of different thoughts about living within means, right? Yeah. Take us through that. Yeah, so this was this was a bit of a controversy, and I actually called Rebbe Hauer and Naftali Horowitz on my way down from Baltimore just to get both of their... Um, both of their feedback in terms of how they actually feel and how they wanted this to be represented. But basically, Rabbi Hauer's, uh, when Rabbi Hauer came on episode three, um, he basically laid out something which he said before, and I've, I've heard him say it before, so it wasn't controversial to me, but I remember even at the time you were surprised with how he said it. And he basically said, listen, it's not the obligation of wealthy people to dial back. Well, there's nowhere in the Torah that says that people who are making a lot of money can't live within their means. It's an obligation on the rest of Yisrael to also live within their means, period, full stop. Is it an opportunity for wealthy people to make a, a, a chasana that's maybe not as extravagant as they could otherwise afford to set out a you know a great example for Yisrael? Sure, beautiful. Is it an opportunity that they should take advantage of? Yes, absolutely. And meanwhile, you know, Naftali Horowitz has kind of made it his thing over the last, you know, number of years where he said, listen, this is something which is is an active problem, which is causing huge issues where their people are constantly getting put into uncomfortable situations where they feel like they have to do certain things in order to keep up with the cones, which is an expression that you've used multiple times on the podcast. And he feels like it's an active problem, which is causing a lot of harm, which we need to stop now. Now, actually, they're not really disagreeing. Like Naftali Horowitz said on the way, he's like, I also wouldn't use the word obligation. I, I, he said, I would use the word achrayis, meaning it's a, just it's a Hebrew, lowercase the R. Term it's a lowercase R responsibility. It's something okay. that, that they, people need to take seriously. But it's like, it's not a, look, it's not a halachic obligation. Rabbi Howard's right. It's not a halachic obligation. And I think with the point, Rabbi Hauer, when, when I spoke to him on the way down, the point he made is, look, you know, we, we're, we're past the point as a community where we can make takanas and we can legislate things. Mm-hmm. He's like, Rabbanim aren't, you know, we, we, it, it's not effective for us to be legislating because we, we don't have an inf- in the type of enforcement mechanisms that we used to. When the Gemara talked about making simple funerals with pine box you know, with pine boxes. That was something that the Gemara could legislate as a takana and the rest of, and for, for, for and we're still doing it now, you know, 1800 years later. Right. He said, we just can't do that anymore. Right. Another piece that um, Rabbi Naftali got into was side hustles. He wasn't a believer in that. 
He said that focus is super important. And when someone's starting out, you don't generally see them making it big after focusing on four different things from the start. What are your thoughts there? What do people say? Yes. So the comments that you got, and again, I I think a lot of this is not so much my thoughts as just trying to distill the comments that we got and try to come up with like a a reasonable approach. That was a disclaimer for all those listening. He doesn't want you to think that. um, And we got a ton of comments on this one. We did. Yeah. No, a lot of people called in and said, I have a side hustle. Right? What's wrong? You're telling me that my I have a side hustle. I'm selling on Amazon and I'm pulling in 15 grand yeah, a month. It was a meaningful side. Like for uh, some, it was it was yeah. a legitimate second job that was yeah, pulling I mean, in. Even guys call and say, "I'm in Colo and I'm selling in Amazon at night." You're telling me that I'm not focusing on my learning during the day because I'm selling on Amazon at night, making 15 grand a month or whatever right. it is. I'm just gonna chime in. Uh, Zevi has like 17 side hustles. He's gonna hate okay. that I'm saying that. Yeah, we're, tur- we're turning off. No, so we're turning off your. We're turning off his mic. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. Uh, organizations you're involved uh, so you yourself personally maybe could have taken some umbrage umbrage like, using no. the word am yeah, I not you, the, no you yeah uh, that's, that's nice how you like incorporating yeah. sophisticated uh, yeah. and picking yeah, that up right away mic off. yeah <laughs> um, but there are meaningful monies coming in that are um, making a difference in people's lives. So I think, I, again, I think it really boils down to what Naftali is saying is if, if you're trying to get something off the ground, if you're a doctor and you're spending your nights selling on Amazon, maybe not the best idea. But at the end of the day, if you have the capacity to do something and give equal focus to multiple things because you're a person who has that ability to, to split focus, then, there's, then there may be value there. I think, that's, I think it comes down to the person and what it is. There was a conversation we had with Rabbi Hauer about moving out of town, if hmm. that's a viable option for people. And I think Stacy had, um, Stacy Zran from Achiezer in episode nine. Um, it, it's just very interesting to hear people's opinions, right? Like you said in episode one, there's no one size fits all. And we saw that throughout the season where you had difference of opinions, right? Is moving out of town a real option for people who financially aren't making it in town? Yeah. So again, this was where you, you really had Rebbe Hauer and Stacy kind of took different tacks on this one. Um, Rebbe Hauer's feeling was that not only is moving out of town sort of an option for people who can't make it, he, he went out of his way to say, it's not for people who are not matzliach in town should move out of town. Rebbe Hauer said, no, people should view out of town as an option for people to really make a difference. You move out of town, you become a valuable part of a small community. You know, there's a real opportunity to make a difference there. People should look at moving out of town as a lechachila. And when I remember you put the question to Stacy, Stacy's like, unless you have another compelling reason to be moving out of town, don't just move out of town to try to make it work financially. In other words, she was really kind of hesitant on the, on the whole idea. And, you know, that's, I, I, I don't know, obviously, it really depends on the person. But, you know, it's funny, I was speaking to an executive director of a very large Brooklyn yeshiva, probably one of the largest. And he said that there is a huge attrition in Brooklyn right now. I mean, he said, like, it's very meaning, statistically meaningful to the point where it's affecting their budget because they're having a lot less students. And it, it's something that we're seeing happen because of really, you know, because of COVID. And we're seeing it happen in the non-Jewish world. We're seeing it happen in the Jewish world where people are moving out of town to Florida, to Texas, to, you know, it's, it's even the same states in the Jewish world and the non-Jewish yeah. world. Maybe not Wyoming. I don't know. Do you know of anybody moving to Wyoming? Oh, um, Yaakov, you have a Nebraska, right? There's a... Demby. Demby's in yeah. Omaha. Yeah, but I, I've seen that in Brooklyn. I know one particular yeshiva where they used to have three parallel classes and a lot of their student body moved to Tom's River, Jackson, right. and they're down to two. So I don't know. It's Lakewood considered out of town. I don't think we. I don't think yeah. we get to say we that anymore. I think we're going to get ourselves in trouble. Yeah. We spoke about that with but, Rabbi uh, Howard. But what was interesting is that you know Yaakov had jumped in on that podcast, and I thought it was actually a really interesting. It was an interesting point. So Yaakov mentioned that he and his friends were considering sort of different communities, not out of town, like still. I don't know. It's five towns, but like Oceanside. Right. Yeah, pull up, a, pull up a seat. Grab Mar- the camera. Marvel. Mar- I, don't I don't know. I don't know. People, these, uh, I, I'm going to come in, but like this is Ellie's podcast. I'm just uh, Malvern. Malvern. That area? Malvern. Merrick. Merrick. Yeah. What were you going to say about it? No, I just thought it was really interesting that y- you kind of were looking at a hybrid solution because one of the one of the biggest things that sort of causes people to want to move out of town is the cost of housing in the tri-state area is intense. Mm-hmm. It's it's really really high. And so, you know, Yaakov was saying, well, I still want the benefits of living in town, right? I want the benefits. I want to be able to send my kid to 
Darche, Tag, whatever, whatever the, the, the local five towns, you know, qu- high quality yeshivas are. I don't necessarily want to move out of town and be a, be a, um, you know, a, a pioneer, but at the same time, I can't afford the housing costs. Are there sort of local institution or lo- local communities where we could lower our cost of living from a housing perspective, but still get all the benefits of living in town? Yeah, no, it's, it's very black and white when people like think of where they're going to live because there's certain personalities that are, born out of town and they're like yeah I would love to move out of town and I love trying new things and then there's the type of person let's say like me who's born in town and I can't fathom it to a fault of like living in Wyoming or Omaha Nebraska or even Florida so like I think that most people are kind of in between of like okay I could hack not living in Manhattan <laughs> but I also can't hack living so out of where I grew up which it's it's definitely a negative thing, but at the same time, that's just the reality of a lot of people my age or a lot of people in this position of like, I need to find something in town, kind of out of it. And uh, yeah, we're still searching. And How's that going? It's, it's, it's hard because there's always issues. Either, either a place is too far from the schooling system or the taxes are very high, at least in this part of Long Island, or the houses are just very small. So when you have all of that, a lot you're trying to compete with the places that are already established, and the prices are high, but they do have a lot of shuls, a lot of mikvahs, uh, close proximity to groceries. So it's not, it's yeah, it's it's not easy. But I, I, the general sense that I get is a lot of people get a lot of relief when they hear at least me expressing this, because so many people have this issue of like, where are we gonna live? You think a part of yours coming to the realization that it's so hard to build something new. Like you look at Cincinnati, it's taken a, a, a lot of good people to help fund that and make it a reality where if you just fall back on what's most convenient, you look at a, an option that is built up, you know, whether it's in on Long Island. It's convenient because it's, it's already established, but it's inconvenient because it's so expensive. Right. So it's like, I don't know if it's really more convenient. I kind of do wish that... We Sounds were, like you're moving to Tom's River, by the way. Just putting it <laughs> out there. A brother of ours, Yitzhi, yes. moved to Tom's River. He actually yeah. lived in Long Island. and they decided. Which I think is kind of cool. Like, he, he moved from Flatbush. He was renting there. He moved to Cedarhurst. Tried it out for a year. It wasn't the right fit. And then he picked up and moved to, moved to Tom's River, which is kind of cool. Because people think that they moved someplace. Their kids are still young. They're, they're married into that location. Yeah. If it's not a good fit, you pick up. You try somewhere else, and they love Tom's River now. Amazing. Yeah. Look, the opportunities because of COVID of people being able to work remotely have made all of this on, like, suddenly it's on the table for 30% of Claudia's whereas two years ago, like, this wasn't even a conversation. Like, you made a joke to Rabbi Howard, like, yeah, like, we're going to move to Kansas. And Rabbi Howard's like, what are you talking about? There's a great community in Kansas. Uh, You just need to get to know it better. Right. Right. And so suddenly it's, these are options that are on the table. And that's why it's important that we're having these conversations. Because it, it could very well be that one of the solutions to this entire issue that we're addressing mm-hmm. is for people to move out of town. And what what's in what what's involved in that? Right. And what do they need to know? That's interesting. You talk about like a single solution to everything we're discussing is where you live. Well, listen, sin, you just mentioned Cincinnati, right? Yeah. Ohio has tuition vouchers. Right. Right. Like the, the OU and the Agoda have worked on that. They've gotten it. They pa- They put. They passed it through the thing. Tuition vouchers. Tuition in Columbus, right, is is sponsored. A large a large part of tuition in Columbus is sponsored by the Ohio government and one local family who underwrites a lot of the schools. So tuition is extremely low. So you move to Columbus, you can buy a house for four hundred fifty thousand in Columbus. What you could buy for a million and a half here. Sure. You're not paying much tuition. State taxes are lower, right? You're seventy five percent home, and right. no pun intended. Like mm-hmm. in, in terms of getting to where you need to get to. So there are some people like Yaakov was going, Yaakov was looking at this going, yeah, great. I'm not moving to Columbus. Right. But for some people, for those people that are on the fence and are able to do it and able to make it work, like, we're, you know, we're sitting here talking about how to lower tuition in a local yeshiva here from $17,000 to $15,000. Okay. So, you, you know, it helps a little bit. Right. But right. We need to have on like a really Brooklyn-y person who moved out of state yeah. and to like vouch <laughs> and like, I'm telling you, you could do it. Like, I'll hold your hand. That's what yeah, I no, I got there. it. I got Do you know any really Brooklyn-y people? I don't know if that example. I think, I you gave, know what? I think you should move out of town and then come back example. in a year. That's right. Yeah. And you could be a pioneer. Yeah, and we can record it live. See how you know you vlog it. You should, that's a separate podcast, by the way. Yes, Yaakov's journey, journey out of town. Yeah, oh, and and living Lachaim, who's Yaakov, really uh, done something cool with that uh, platform, and I know he has a couple of other 
podcasts that are going to be created, which I think will help even kosher money because it's going to open up um, everything we're doing to a whole new subset of people. But let's talk about that. So we spoke about tuition with Repeshi Glass. And Repeshi has a lot of experience in the out-of-town communities where they do have government grants and, and um, lower costs. And it's a little bit different than the ones um, or the schools in, in town, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the cost of living, the tuition, everything is different depending on where you live. Let's start with this, Evie. The cost of tuition depending on where you live. What are the numbers? Yeah, so it's th- this is really important. And just, just a preface to the whole tuition thing. So, you know, we got a lot of feedback on every episode. I think on every episode we got feedback about tuition. Like, <laughs> it was like, let's talk about life insurance. Okay, but I'm going to tell you about my tuition issues, right? <laughs> right. Like, and, and when people gave feedback about tuition, it wasn't like a 30-second voice note. It was like a six-minute voice note with the story of my life and every opinion that I have. And it all like, you know, a lot of people said... He said, this is our conversation every Friday night in our house around the table. Like every time we have guests, we're talking about tuition. Every time like my in-laws come, we're talking about tuition because it's so personal to people and they feel so strongly about it because it's something that they're living with. And it's something that affects, it affects what they do. It affects their parnasa. It affects whether their wife works. It affects, you know, their kids come home from, from yeshiva and they, they're, they're thrilled with their kids' chinuch. But they still feel like this is something that's that 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 they're living with every day, and so the emotions that that episode, that all the episodes brought out, but the emotions that that episode brought out, it was like I remember you just kept saying throughout the episode, "We're going to do more." Like I promise you, we're going to do yeah, more. Like yeah, yeah. We're, we're coming back. Like not all of the we're not we're not addressing everything, right? And so that it it, it needs to be said like that that is so it, it it was overwhelming. I think to all of us, just the the avalanche of feedback that we got. On that particular episode, um, okay. To address the question, so this is this this is also really important. We were talking about you know just a second ago. We were talking about out of town. I think it's really important to understand the dynamics of tuition are so different by community and by school. And I think it's important for people to go in with their eyes wide open that it's not a fair question to say, well, why in Lakewood are they paying six thousand dollars, but in the five towns we're paying, you know, twenty two thousand dollars for Halb or twenty eight thousand for Hafter or seventeen thousand for Darke. It, right, every one of these schools, like Rabbi Glass. I point, love how he knows numbers, by the way. Like, how does he know? He knows Just to keep going. Before you get into this, tell me, um, Flatbush. Brooklyn, what what's the cost so of tuition? Brooklyn, there? it's basically between eight and eleven thousand, depending on the school and depending on how old your kid is. Florida, eight and twelve thousand. What about Florida? So Florida now is actually really it's changing quickly because I think the the school in Florida, the the main school in in South Florida, right, is I don't remember the name of the school, Torres MS or something like that. So it's very interesting. I don't know exactly what their tuition numbers are, but what's what's really interesting is that their enrollment at their school mm-hmm. has gone up from I think a thousand kids to thirteen hundred kids or wow. whatever in the last year. So they're having to like frantically build out and try to accommodate the influx of people that are moving to North Miami Beach, to Miami Beach, to uh, mm-hmm. Boca, and to all these kids, who, to all these parents who suddenly want to send their kids to this school. So I think what's going to end up happening there is they're probably going to open more schools to accommodate mm-hmm. the influx of people. Is that making the prices go higher or lower? I think for the short term, it may make the costs go up a little bit, just as they try to build out infrastructure to accommodate. Mm. But um, I, look, I think the school there is a it, the school there is probably a traditional out of town type, like out of town schools, not in communities where necessarily where you have m- uh, major grants from the government. But out of town schools can sometimes go a little can, can approach like five towns mm-hmm. type type tuitions, like between fourteen and seventeen thousand mm-hmm. dollars for for out of town schools in places like Dallas and Atlanta. And again, I don't want to be held to each specific school, but these are just general things. And a lot, and sometimes the reason for that is that an out-of-town school doesn't have as many people as an in-town school has. And so when you're dealing with a high school where you have 120 students, but you need a building and you need teachers and you need infrastructure and you need committees and you need you know all of these things, your costs are going to be higher because you just have less kids to defray the cost. I've heard Lakewood, even though it might be whatever the number is, five to 7,000, there is no forgiveness. Right. So that's that's a very interesting model. And I've spoken to a lot of people in Lakewood about it, and it works for them. But ultimately, in Lakewood, like you said, there's, and again, there's a lot of exceptions, and or there are exceptions, but as a general rule, tuition is much lower than anywhere else. Class sizes are higher. 
Mm-hmm. They're not doing model U like model UNs like Rabbi Glass said. You know, if you want to get into Yale or Harvard, you have to prove that you went through model UN and you had a you know a, 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 a built out sports program and built out science labs of a certain caliber. And mm-hmm. so in Lakewood, they don't have to do that. Which I've learned is why it's considerably cheaper. Correct. And plus, they have more kids per class. Mm-hmm. They have a better, perhaps a better supply of teachers mm-hmm. because of the amount of people coming through the system and, and, and that are more readily available. So they have a better supply of teachers. And like you said, there isn't a lot of forgiveness. And it's hard to get into school in Lakewood. And you basically, they'll send, they'll send tuition bills to parents, grandparents, uncles, cousins. And that's just the way it works. But it's cheaper than anywhere else. And so it's there's trade-offs to everything in life. Right. I saw Darche and Yeshiva Katana in the five towns sent out a letter to parents stating that the food is going to be covered by the government or school meals, thereby saving parents, whatever it is, $1,500 over the course of the year. Um, so government could, and Rebecca Glass spoke about this, that it could be a real way to solve a good chunk of the monies that people are paying out where you look at Cincinnati and I got stubs from people. They're like, yeah, you should move here or you move there. Look how, look how little I'm paying because the government is subsidizing. Um, that could be a real solution. But what are your ideas to lower tuition? Okay. So I have an idea. Um, I, I, I'm going to put this out there and if anybody's interested in following up, this is not my, I don't think this has originated with me. We looked at us 10 years ago um, and we're looking at it again um, now and if, if if anybody sort of wants to wants to discuss it, but the idea would be as follows: right, tuition right now is not tax deductible, which presents a real problem for people who are having to make these you know these payments out on, on post tax on their on their incomes. So our idea was as follows: let's say a, a tuition in a school is twelve thousand dollars. Okay, our idea was you approach the parents who are paying full tuition. Let's say it's thirty, forty, fifty percent of a parent body, and say, listen. Next year, we're lowering tuition to $8,000. Tuition's going to be $8,000 next year. The other $4,000 is a voluntary payment to a synagogue fund, to a separate 501c3. And that $4,000 is going to be tax deductible, which for people who itemize on their taxes, they could potentially walk away with 30 to 40% of that money back. Now, it's complete, it has to, in order for this to be legal, it has to be completely voluntary, right? So $8,000 tuition now has gone down from 12 to eight. That extra $4,000, pay it or don't. If you pay it, it's tax deductible. If you don't pay it and you can afford to pay it, the next year tuition's right back up to $12,000. Meaning if you get buy-in from the parent body where all the full tuition paying parents are going, listen, I am anyways paying full tuition. I have a choice. I can either buy into the system, it's $8,000 plus $4,000, or I don't buy into the system. If I don't buy into the system, then we're right back to where we started. But if every parent buys into the system, guess what? Next year, tuition could be 7000 And then the delta's 5000 Now I've got 5000 coming back as a, as a, um, a, that I can itemize on my taxes. And I'll tell you what else is really interesting potentially about that idea. If you get 80 90% of the parents bought in, and you'd have to have committees, and you go visit the parents, and you explain why it's important, and you get them to give you a credit card that will be charged once every, you know, once a month for the next 12 months to cover that delta. And if you have 80 90% of the parents bought in, and right now in, in, we're, we're looking at the potential of doing it in one community with one school, and not only that, the balabatim in the community agreed to underwrite the risk to the school. So if the school says, I don't want to do that, what happens if we get 33% next year? Balabatim will underwrite the risk mm. to, the, to, the, to the school for doing that. So suddenly, for half of the parent body, tuition now becomes, a, a, a 33% of tuition is now tax deductible. But I'll tell you what else could potentially be beneficial on that is, you know, there's parents who, let's say, can afford to pay, let's say full tuition is now 8000 instead of twelve or mm-hmm. fourteen. There are parents who can't afford to pay twelve. And they can only afford to pay seven, but when tuition is twelve, they're going to go to the tuition committee and go through the whole thing, and you have to show your tax returns and go through that whole process. If tuition's only eight thousand dollars, suddenly parents making six or seven might just say, "You know what? I'm going to pay eight because I don't want to have to go through that. I'm not. Yeah. I'm not doing it. I'm not going through that." So, you know, I think that that has a potential to to be a. The a next benefit. scene, Zevi's getting in a cop car, like being arrested for a Ponzi scheme. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm no, kidding. but on that note. Someone wrote in a question, can the schools let us know exactly what it costs to educate a child so that the rest can come out of my miser? <laughs> so, right? If, if it yeah. is, let's say, 8000 then they know that 
it could be charity dollars yeah. that's allocated towards to, to fill the gap. Yeah, and that was, I mean, that comment is one of a whole bunch of comments that we got expressing frustration with the schools that they feel like they don't know what the school's budgets are. And they don't, because they don't know what the school's budget is, they, they, feel, they feel frustrated. They feel like they're not, they're not being let in and they're, they're paying a lot of money, but they're not, they're, they don't feel like they're real partners with the school. And I think one of the episodes that we want to do in the next season is an episode where we can get a school to agree to come on. So if you're, you're an executive director at a school or a chairman of the board at a school and you'd be willing to come on to, um, to, to, to kosher money and talk about it and answer questions that parents have. And, and in fairness, I think a lot of the questions that parents have and are frustrated with have good answers. Mm-hmm. Like parents will say, well, it's not fair. In Lakewood, they're paying 6000 but in Farrakwai, paying sixteen. the Farrakwai school should go and learn. It's not the same, right? right? And there's a really good answer to that question. Right. But right. the problem is that parents feel like they're not getting right. A lot of people do. A lot of people do think, I'm not in tuition world yet, which, uh, but a lot of people do think that like the schools are getting rich off it and like people really think that we got a bunch of feedback yeah. like that like and, people angry at the schools right. and we spoke with um, one fundraiser at a school who there's a few of him at that school and the reason they exist is because the school has a, bu- a budget let's say I'll make up a number of a million dollars and tuition only covers 700,000 and they have to fill the gap with community raised funds and he says a lot of the things and like you said a lot of the questions could be answered there are real answers there's there's real insight now not everything is perfect he said he told me he goes obviously sometimes you know when i'm buying paper are we spending as much time as we could to find the best deal on the paper so that thereby we can bring the cost down or when we're paying electric if we were to use a different provider you know he's like you're right if we were and we look deep into it, I'm sure there are ways we can save money. But he says the budget that they have isn't so far off from where it needs to be. But like you said, Zevi, and I know you have a lot to say on this, people want to see that. They want to know that this is the budget. This is how much we're paying. These are, these are the costs. This is how much we have left. They want to see that. 100%. And I'll, I'll, I'll make the question, let's, let's, let's not make it about paper and electricity. Okay. Let's, let's make the question, like somebody wrote, somebody, when, when you sort of gave that feedback to somebody who sent you a voice note, they sent back what I think is a very interesting point. And I'm not commenting. I, I don't have any comment on this, but they said, okay, fine. Let's, let's, let's agree. Let's stipulate that the school's budgets are, that nobody's getting rich. Mm-hmm. And the school's budget are the school's budget is reasonable, and that the reason why we're paying is because we're getting a service, and and all of that's true. Let's say the school decides that they have to go make a massive expenditure to build a new wing, a new building, a new base medrash, a new whatever it is, right? And not all of it is going to be donated, mm-hmm. uh, but and they're putting up a five million dollar wing. Guess what? Tuition's going to go up because by definition it has to go up. Mm-hmm. We have to make the payments. Why like, should do, that be? Do on? parents get it? Do parents get a say in whether or not the school makes a decision that's going to cause their tuition to go from fifteen to eighteen? Do parents get a say in that? And I, I have no idea what the answer is. But in other words, these are the things that we would love to have schools come on and address these issues. And I'll tell you something else, which is just interesting. Somebody once asked her of Pom, and I, 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 I remember this in between episodes. Somebody asked her of Pom, do you get to charge my kid tuition X to offset the cost of people who are not paying full tuition? Right. And this is a question you asked her by glass. And they right. asked that to her of Pom. And Rav Palm says yes, and he said a very interesting reason why. He said because of, in, in, in Yiddish, or I don't know what language, he says chavraya, right? Maybe it's, I don't know, chavraya. What does chavraya mean? It means that sometimes the kids who are not able to pay full tuition, who are those kids? It's the Rebbeim's kids, the Rabbanim's kids. You need those kids in the school. Mm-hmm. You need these kids in the school. And they add a tre- having Rebbeim and Rabbanim's kids in the school adds a tremendous value to the ruchnias and the spirituality of the school. So yeah. You should be paying to have those kids in your uh, in the school. So somebody I know who heard that said, "Well, wait a second. That's great. So if I'm paying for the Rebbeim's kids, do I get to choose whether or not to have my kids in the Rebbeim's kids class? Or if I'm chevraya, uh, I'm paying for chevraya. I want my kids with the right with that that chevra." So uh, it's an interesting question. I don't, I don't think it's a simple answer, but it's 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 an interesting question if that's the perspective on why you get to do that. You mentioned looking into um, a parent's finances so that they're deemed to be eligible for financial aid. Someone wrote in that perhaps 
family should have to take some sort of interest-free loan to pay for whatever is missing in mm. that scholarship or in their tuition statements. Because if you have other parents covering the cost of those families, there's no responsibility or there's no, you know, and, and this is just a, a thought. We got so many different pieces, yeah. but they're like, why are we paying for something that is not relevant to my child? And you just answer from Rev Palm, but... No, so... It, 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 there, there's a very fundamental machlokas when it comes to tuition. I've heard this from Rabbi Hauer many times, and I know how Rabbi Hauer feels about that particular issue. And it's an, it's an, it's, it has multiple ramifications. And that are, the machlokas is as follows. right? The idea of the school system came from Rabbi Shua ben Gamla, who determined that it wasn't viable to have fathers educating their children. We need it to be the community's responsibility. Okay? Everybody agrees that there needs to be tuition because otherwise the system couldn't function. But fundamentally, when it comes down to it, a parent has to pay the most that they can, however you define what the most that they can is. But at that, after that point, can a school give a parent an IOU and say, whenever in life you finish paying tuition for the rest of your kids and you're in retirement now, come back and make the rest of it up to us? Or fundamentally, is it the community's responsibility, when it comes down to a bottom line, when there's a shortfall, whose achrayas is it? Is it the community's achrayas? Or no, it costs $12,000 to educate your kid. You don't, get to get, you don't get to tell the electricity company, I'm sorry, listen, I know my bill is $1,500 this month. All I can afford is $800. I'm really sorry about that. Here's my tax return if you don't believe me. Whose achrayas is it? Is it the parent's achrayas, bottom line? Or is it the community's achrayas? And there's a lot of ramifications to that, including whether is a school allowed to give an IOU? It's to, a, to a parent, is a school allowed to say, okay, but you owe us the rest of it? I know Rabbi Howard believes the answer is no. Mm-hmm. Fundamentally, it's a community's responsibility. Parents have to do the best they can, yes. Does there need to be a tuition committee? Sure. But at the end of the day, community's responsibility, Rabbi Shuab and Gamla, this is the way we set it up. It's a community's achrayas, like Rabbi Glass said also. You have a mikvah, you have a thing, right? You have shuls, you have a mikvah, you have it. Yeah, you have to make sure that kids can get a Jewish education. I saw someone during COVID that they told the school they weren't able to afford whatever tuition was or whatever they agreed to. And they said to him, I saw the letter, it said from this particular school, it said that the student will be allowed back into the school once they agree that at some point they'll get the money that is owed to them. Yeah, so that's the you know, that's, that's, issue. that's the the struggle. Two more, two more on the tuition slash schools. I thought it was interesting, and we'll get into the budgeting. It's becoming the tuition recap. Yeah, no, it, it was it was a big piece. A lot of I, I know I'm going to get a ton of feedback. Sure. Uh, the, the email address you get a lot of emails, Avi. Yeah, so I, honestly, like we said, we you know, Living Smarter Jewish has really reformulated a lot of what we focused on based on this, and it's because like you, you kept giving out the email address. So yeah. Thank you for that. Um, info at livingsmarterjewish.org. And people have been emailing us. I think I would say we get about 10 emails a day. Wow. wow. 100% from the podcast. Wow. Like we just we just went out Jewish action. Like we just came out and there's a lot about living smarter Jewish in there. So now we're getting a lot of on that. But up until now, it's been like we weren't ready to launch as an organization until right. October 1st. And I figured, okay, fine. We launched the podcast, right? How many said you said dozens of people were going to yes. listen to it. Yeah. I heard you say dozens. That is correct. Okay, so dozens of people are going to listen to it. So then fine. We'll deal with dozens we'll of people. We'll get the website up when the website's up. I was yeah, pushing people it. to the website. People were like, the website's just a landing page now. I'm like, oh, really? I guess they And it's still just a landing page because we were we're not ready for 100,000 people to listen to a podcast. And the answer is it just this topic really, really touched people. So we had two episodes on budgeting, and we'll, we'll discuss why. But one, while we're still discussing the schools, people had submitted this idea, a couple of people, where maybe we can ask the schools, Litoeles, to encourage people who may not be making ends meet to go to the budgeting sessions. Very similar to how Yoel Bodek said he would love for the schools to encourage people to get life insurance. Not force them, but it's another way where a school, if they want their parent body to be fiscally responsible, at the end of that meeting, they go, hey, by the way, after this conversation, we think that you should probably speak to so-and-so about life insurance and also maybe sit with a Stacy or a Simi and have a conversation about budgeting. We think that you'll be able to breathe a little bit easier. So I thought that was interesting. And there was, yeah, Sorry. go ahead. No, You're so this is a, it's, it's a very interesting one because I will tell you in, when, when we were running the organization in Baltimore for the last number of years, we found the least effective 
the least effective cases that we worked with mm. in personal finance, the least effective were the ones where they had to come. So like a, 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 an Avasi Yisrael or a Tom Shabbos would say, you want money from us? You oh. want you know food boxes on Friday? Go sit with them and get your budget in order. People, people are coming because they need the food boxes. They're not coming because they want to get their budget in order. In order to get your budget to, like in order and whatever, what, what, what's been learned from all of these years is that people have to be motivated and they have to want to. And for whatever reason, it could be one of a hundred reasons, but the least effective is when people are forced to come. Interesting. So maybe encouraged or lightly slash strongly. Right. Um, One other idea on the schools is someone submitted this idea of similar to adopt a kolel, adopt a yeshiva, where let's say 5% of a school's budget is the back office, where you have these successful accounting firms or these successful businesses that have the internal wherewithal to manage an institution's back office and it wouldn't be at much cost to them you can help alleviate that where this adopt a yeshiva um i thought that was uh, pretty interesting does, does harvesting media want to do marketing for no Shivkatana? no <laughs> um we're specifically focused on the food uh the food industry. We'll talk about the, well, I, I think the food the industry lunch. has a lot more to yeshivas to do with yeshivas now. That than is it true. Did. That <laughs> is true. We can have a separate conversation about that. Um, we had two budgeters on in season one. We had, and they were both great, Simi Mandelbaum, um, and we also had Stacey Zrian from Achiezer. People ask us questions, Evie, right? The three producers of the uh, podcast are sitting right here. Why have two budgeters? Why didn't you have two life insurance uh, brokers <laughs> right. to discuss this? Right. No, and both episodes got a lot of positive feedback. Um, I will say that one of the, before we answer that question, one of the interesting things that happened was the people who came on um, and pr- actually provide a service, like as part of what they do, have been overwhelmed by demand. And that's Ned Schoenfeld came on. He told me he has jobs. a call, uh, jobs and, and Parnassa and how people can find good jobs. I think he said he has 40 people waiting to talk to him now since mm. the episode. Um, and hopefully Stacy as well. It was more recent, so I haven't spoken to her, sure. but um, hopefully Stacy as well. And so to answer your question, I think Simi and Stacy have different approaches to budgeting, although I think they would both agree with each other's, um, you know, what, what the emphasis that each of the other one placed, but they have different approaches to budgeting. Simi's approach is she's a, a financial therapist. I think that's what she, mm. that's what it's called. Is yeah. that right? Yeah, certified financial certified, therapist. Certified financial one therapist. One of only yes. 300 in the U.S. And that the is only from. only orthodox yeah. one that's from. Right? Yeah. The, only, yeah. the only one that's, oh, that's, that's orthodox, true. yeah. So um, she, her, her perspective on it really starts with, uh, uh, it's a mindset, mm. right? Budgeting, money. It's for, for the same way that a therapist would approach an issue. It comes down to mindset and it comes down to what your approach to finances is. And then the budgeting, yeah, it needs to get done and you need to get into it. But at the end of the day, you've got to be coming at it from the right place. And this is what we were saying before. Somebody's forced to go into a budgeting right. thing. They're just, it's not going to work. The emotions have to be right. Exactly. The emotions have to be right. And what's your attitude towards spending? And what was your attitude as a kid and growing up? And what are the bad habits that you develop? Mm. And how can we help you develop good habits? Right. Those are the that's like her where her core focus and where she's coming from. And then, yeah, she talked about all these different budgeting apps to use and she has her own budgeting spreadsheets. Stacy, I think, really comes at it from a much more, I would say, black and white, you know, let's sit down together and figure out where's all that money going. And let's let's go line by line, figure out where the money's going, understand, you know, thing. And and, and that really Naftali Hart's mentioned it in his episode also a little bit like every dollar that you spend here, you're going to get less over there and right. you're borrowing from your future and that like and that's really I think you know Stacy's really coming at it from from that and 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 Bar Hashem we got great feedback on both of them but I think both are are equally important I actually sat with Stacy Yaakov went with his wife as well and yeah. she'll really only meet unless in severe circumstances the couple at the same time and we literally went through it I did a little homework before so I can get how much I'm paying life insurance annually health insurance dental insurance and there were four or five solid takeaways to save potentially thousands of dollars a month. She said, she looks at, she goes, let me see your water bill. Okay. She said, $300 a month the past three months. She said, that's something wrong there. She's like, you have a smart sprinkler? I go, what? She goes, yeah, your sprinkler won't go on if it's raining outside. I said, no. She's like, not only that, the Long Island water company, American water will subsidize it. Two days later, I went on the website for a hundred bucks. I got a smart sprinkler. And that money will be saved in a few months, knowing that it's not going to rain, so the sprinkler should... It's going to rain, so the sprinkler's not going to go on. Yeah, Just, I, What yeah. was your experience? So, 
Uh, apologies for my voice. I was just davening very heilige during Rosh Hashanah. No, I have a virus. Um, not COVID. But with me... You just our, had a separate podcast right there. You just <laughs> my takeaway was it, was, it was incredible. Um, first of all, it's budgeting. I think just that word, it, it makes a lot of people anxious. So I definitely didn't want to do it. But once you do it, it's like after you have such clarity. For us, we had so much of our accounts. We had so many accounts. I don't know why, but I had $1,000 there and $2,000 there. She's like, why do you have so many accounts? I'm like, well, it's a separate business. And then over there, she's like, it's separate business. And I thought I was like, no, no separate business. But she basically was saying- He has like, conversations with himself, you notice that? <laughs> she basically yeah. was saying that like, no, just get all your money in one place. And it's like, at since my wife and I were like, just that to know, like we didn't, she's like, how much money do you have? I'm like, I have no clue. She's like, how do you not know? Like around, I'm like, I don't even know. And like just to give that clarity was so helpful for us. And even since then, we've been like spending our money more wise because, or what, wisely? Wisely. We were spending our money more wisely. It's a good thing you have health insurance <laughs> sounding like yeah. that. She also talk. said, I'm spending too much on health insurance. She said, you have a great plan, but do you need that? Which I thought was interesting. pretty interesting. I have a whole life insurance policy, which she said, you yeah. get rid of that. She wants me to get rid of it. I have to talk to my insurance broker. He's not going to be happy with you. He's not. But but these are the things that no one else either knows or has a conversation with you about, which was very insightful. Right. You know, how much we're spending on groceries, eating out. You know, we don't necessarily go to restaurants. Are you going to share how much you spend on groceries here? I think it was over $500 a week. Okay. And she said, you know, based on a family your size, you you probably could save 100 bucks a week. um, That she was able to say like, hey, I sat down with hundreds of thousands of people like and you fall into over here like she has you always want to know like oh am i spent like i said with the grocery like for my family does this make sense and like we always ask this question you don't know the answer she's able to say like hey i from my experience i'm not a what do i know but from my experience you should be over here based on this income and based on the amount of people uh, that i've seen which is also really great she said that in terms of retirement she showed where the money would be in 20, 30 years from now. And she said, that's good. She's like, but the problem is you don't have an emergency fund. Right. And she said, I don't want you to put, keep putting money into your retirement. I want you to be able to have three to six months of your income put away into, which I thought was super insightful. And I wouldn't have had that information. We're going to try to start doing that. Um, Subscriptions. That was a, a big one. Where yeah, you you made a big thing on that. Yeah. Can you, so can you just talk about yeah, that for sure. a second? Yeah, sure. So I put on my status, my WhatsApp status. It's read by dozens of people, hmm. and it's not dozens. And there's this app called Truebill, which will you you connect your accounts. It's safe, so they say, and it will go through all of your bank statements, your credit card statements, and show you where your recurring bills are. And I had people reach out to me and say. You just saved me $105 a month. That's $1,300 a year. Yeah. I go, what were you spending the money on? He says, my wife accidentally checked off a box to on justfab.com where every month she gets $40 put into the JustFab account to spend money on shoes. She's like, she, A, she never ordered shoes after that one time. And B, I, I realized like I had $1,500 in justfab.com. He's like, I call the company up. They say, oh, okay, yeah, we'll return the money to you. Amazing. People are spending money because they don't even know they have these subscriptions. Just Fab hates kosher money. Yeah, right? Yeah, they they are not a sponsor money. of us. But Truebill <laughs> should be. And and Truebill, it's free for seven days. You can go if you don't want to continue using it. I think it's like $3 a month. It's a subscription. on that's, that's so so <laughs> Yeah, it's like uh, very interesting. Um, but that was a real way that people can save money because they don't realize they're spending $14 a month. Oh, one guy who reached out to me, he had two Amazon Prime accounts. He was paying. He's like I, I he never knew. A lot of he's like I don't get it. He's like I don't get the items any faster. No, right? So he ca- he cut out one of his uh, prime. There was there were so many different stories. So by the time I got to Stacy, she's like, you really don't have too many subscriptions. I'm like yeah. <laughs> um, and I, I made up with her that I'm going to meet her uh, with my wife again in six months to Beautiful. see where we're holding. So um, and it was free of charge. I think there's this stigma associated with a chesed organization. In this case, it's Achiezer that does great work where, oh, you're going to meet with a financial advisor. You must have real problems. Whether someone has real problems or not, it doesn't make a difference. She can help you, which I thought was pretty amazing. Um, And we'll see over time how many people do reach out, but highly, highly recommend you take um, her up on the offer. Um, Let's talk about Parnas on Rosh Hashanah. I know it came up quickly and we're going all over the place. That's the point of the recap. Um, If everything is decided upon Rosh Hashanah, 
how does the Stabas during the during the year play a role? Right. So I'm not a Rav, um, and by rights shouldn't be getting this question, but we did get the question a lot after um, Rabbi Hauer's episode, which he dealt very, a lot with Emun and Betachen, and I, I think people said that one of the things that they struggled with the most is if Parnasasa Shalom Ketuvim Lemir Rosh Hashanah, Rosh Hashanah, so then what are we all doing here? Right. Right. So an answer that I heard once, I think I actually heard it, I'm trying to remember where I heard it, I don't remember, was that the Rabbi Shalom gives a, puts a certain amount of shefa, meaning a certain amount of opportunity into the world for a person. And then there's a lot of bechira that's associated with that. In other words, a person has to make reasonable hishtadlis, but there's also amounts that a person, right? I think everybody understands the idea that if it's raining outside and you go out with a cup, you're going to get a certain amount of water. If you go out with a bucket, you're going to get more. And if you go out with a bathtub, you're going to get more. And there's a certain amount of shefa that's put in the world. And a person, yeah, if a person chooses to take a lower paying job, that's bechira. And it could be that that's the right thing for him. Like Rabbi Howard said, people, you know, they move out of town. It's, a, you know, a, 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 they, they don't make as much money, but they don't have as much expectation. And, and, and it could be that they're much happier by doing that. But if a person wants to work more hours and put in more to a certain, to a, a, a reasonable extent, mm-hmm. then they have the ability to go out and access more and, and, and access more of that chef up to, up to a certain limit. Obviously, it's not limitless. And I'm not a rub. And, you know, ask your local Orthodox rabbi what's, uh, what's appropriate for each person. But I think that that's the answer that I heard that I sort of makes the most sense to me. And the two words that I, again, personally, I live with like every day when I think about this question is reasonable hishtadlis. The Rabbi Shalom expects reasonable hishtadlis. What's reasonable? It's different for every person. Another area where I think an episode that made a real dent was life insurance. Yep. People went out to take out policies, even just, just having a conversation with their uh, neighbor who sells life insurance and said, hey, do I have enough life insurance? Um, I was very, very happy to see that there was so much discussion around it. Um, but one of the things we didn't cover, regretfully so, is how much life insurance someone should take out. And we spoke with Reb Yoel Bodek uh, before this episode. Is he Reb? He is yeah. to me. He's my Rebbe. Okay. He's my life insurance Rebbe. <laughs> um, he's uh, super insightful, um, always willing to help. Um, and he said, and, and there was like this sliding scale, like if, if you have one kid, people say anywhere from 500000 to a million dollars per child is, is the policy you should take out, but he, he had an interesting way of putting it. He says there's different ways to look at it, but the most basic way is that people should get a policy that's 20 times their living expenses. So if their annual costs are $100,000, they should have $2.4 million in coverage. He says that a million dollars in the bank can be spent very quickly, a lot quicker than people can think. But with 20X, you can allow a family to live their lifestyle within their means. They don't have to cut back. There wouldn't be any hindrance. He says, you take that money, the 2.4 million, you can set up a fund where back in the day, maybe you would get 5% interest and you'd be able to live off of that interest. He says in today's landscape, it's a little bit harder with the lower interest earned. Um, He spoke about, and you can listen to that episode, about stacking coverage, um, different ways. But he he didn't go so much in the per child. Um, His answer wasn't in the per child, um, which Albert Kahn, who was that fellow who runs around and made it his life mission to get people. um, I think he said, um, and if I'm quoting you wrong, he will call me. Um, I think it was 500,000 minimum per child. It might have been a million. Some say that. Um, But uh, Yoel Bodek said it was 20x. people's living expenses, living expenses which was um, yep. kind of uh, interesting and insightful. Um, one thing we did not cover is people, when they heard the investment episode, they said, okay, so it's guaranteed. Like, I'm going to make the money if I put the money in the S&P 500. And someone reached out and was like, you didn't really cover risk, right? Mm-hmm. You know, ask people who invested in 2007 if they strongly believe that it's a guarantee. So, you know, the last 10 years, it's been, the stock market's been climbing and climbing, um, but I, I do think we should have Reb Naftali Horowitz back on to cover um, risk and how to set up an IRA. Um, people are chalishing for that. Zevi, what are you doing on the video side of things? Yes. So when we talked about sort of reformulating our priorities, so after Naftali's episode and after Simi's episode, people are like, well, wait a second, that was a great 45 minutes to an hour, but I need a lot more information. And so we are at Living Smarter Jewish. We actually had Naftali in 
um, for he sat down for like two two and a half hours and just talked about the basics and what you need to know and what a bar mitzvah boy should do with his money and what's the chassan and kala, how they should approach investing and things like that. And we're hopefully going to be making that available, hopefully in conjunction with, with kosher money. Um, and we're really excited to put that out. Now, it's not like podcast type material necessarily. It's not like, okay, family listening, let's talk about the difference between ETFs and hedge funds. And, you know, it's, it's a little bit less exciting and it's a little, you know, not so controversial. Um, but it's really important, and we feel like that 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 information needs to be out there. We're trying to make it as entertaining as possible, and as easy to to uh, view and to uh, listen to as possible. I had a ton of requests. People said we love their Naftali Harwitz episode, but I don't know how to set up an IRA. You, you know what's fascinating about that is that if you Google, if you like type into YouTube how to set up an IRA, you'll probably get one hundred and fifty thousand responses, more, maybe a million. But that's the problem. In other words, people feel overwhelmed by the sheer amount of information that's out there, mm-hmm. not knowing how to cull that information and like isolate like what they should be looking at. And that's why it's like, okay, I, I feel comfortable that I trust you guys, Naftali Horowitz, whoever it is. Like, just let him tell me what to do, and that, and then you know that's how I'm going to do it. A good friend of mine, whose um, you know whose whose financial advice I trust, and um, is it made a fantastic suggestion to me. And it's not not the time or place for this particular, but for for those of you who um, would who uh, could potentially benefit from in putting investments in that are perhaps more risky and having it grow completely intr- um, tax free over a long period of time. Strongly recommend looking into that. Speak to people um, that you trust. Uh, very very highly recommend something I just didn't know, but came out you know as as part of these conversations. Young married couples. Yeah. I know Living Smarter Jewish, and I think a few different guests mentioned it where if we start early enough, we can help people. Stacy, in particular, we can help people avoid problems. What's Living Smarter Jewish doing to help sure. these young married so couples? Young, young people. So before we get to young married couples, let's start with kids because really important. So a lot of people were saying, I wish I would have learned this in school, and I wish I would have known. Young, so what we're doing is since we started, since the first podcast, we've developed two curriculums, curricula, um, for 11th and 12th grade girls and boys. We're making them available completely free of charge. And we put that out in the Jewish Action. We've already, I think we're up to like 15 or 20 schools mm. that we're putting financial edu- um, financial literacy education. Can adults take it? I'm so, it, it? It's not a joke. It's And, and I, I when I was looking at the, at the um, table of contents, I'm like, okay, I need to read this. Right. It was really interesting. And there's one that's less sophisticated for people who, like for kids who really may not be ready, like who need a, a real 101 course. And there's one that's much more sophisticated. Um, so that that's available. Any high school yeshiva, please feel free to reach out. Info at livingsmarterjewish.org. Those are free. Second thing is you talked about young couples. So one of the things, like you said, Stacy and Naftali and everybody said, it's so important if people get started like what you guys doing, you're both young. Um, and you get started young. Savvy's like a year older than me, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm trying here. Um, and you get started young and you put your, um, you, you get your budget in order, like at, at, a, at a relatively young age, you start investing at a relatively young age. You really mitigate a ton of the problems that people are showing up in their 50s and 60s with with much with challenges that are much harder to resolve at mm-hmm. that point. Of course, you know, it's all siyata dishmayin and, 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 and things, of course, can be done. But so what we're trying to do is we're really approaching young couples as like a massive target for this. And we have, it's really amazing. So somebody listened to the podcast from Cleveland. He's like, I know a guy in Milwaukee you need to talk to. Sure. Puts me in touch with a guy from Milwaukee. And he's, this, I, I, I'm speaking to the guy, and he says, I said, so what do you do? He says, I've been a financial advisor since 1986. Great. So why are we talking? You know, David said, I need to talk to you. Why are we talking? He says, well, the truth is, he says, what I've been doing is Meisersmann, which basically means giving 10% of your time. He's like, I spent four hours a week with young couples in Milwaukee. Every young couple that gets married in Milwaukee, more or less, they, I sit with them for an hour and a half, and I set up their bank accounts, and I set up a Meiser account, and I set up an IRA, and we go through a budget, and I explain to them the basics that they need to know. I give them my cell phone number, and I say, call me and text me in six months. He's like, used to be people would call me. Nobody calls me anymore. Everybody mm-hmm. texts me. Fine. So he says, I've gotten very good with text. He said, text me in six months. Let me know how you're doing. Text me in a year. He says, I've got people that are like five, 10 years down the road now, and they've been in touch with me. They're like, I'm following the budget that we sent when I, you know, whatever. I said, I said, Jay, that's amazing. I said, but you're not replicable, right? Like, I, I can't have you. But I said, would you train other financial advisors 
to be able to do what you do and sit with young couples and go through and help them set up their accounts while they're sitting with you. I said, 100%. So I think we're at about five or six advisors. We're training, Mr. Shum, we're tra- it's gonna be a relatively short training. He has all the materials already done and they obviously all, all know what they're talking about already. Training them to hopefully make it available to Hassanim and Kalas free of charge throughout like any, any Hassan and Kalas Yisrael now that we can do things remotely especially. And our goal is that hopefully over time we can train enough people that every Hassan and Kala goes through this as part of their Hassan Kala training. Yeah, I love it. Like Hassan Kalas, they they go to a Hassan Kala teacher because hey, you're about to get married, and yet there's these are certain things you need to discuss. And and me personally, I mean, we did discuss the finances, but like very limited. It was like a right. ten minute conversation. Right. I love that you're creating this program to really set these couples up. Uh, what if someone's thirty five and they want to go through this? Or will they be? Will there? So he he says that it's it, his program is most effective for people in Shana Rishona. He doesn't talk to people after Shana Rishona. Mm-hmm. But Living Smarter Jewish does have we we I think just also from the podcast by the way it's unbelievable. People just email us and say, "Can I volunteer? Mm-hmm. I'm a accountant. What I want to volunteer." We have we're up to ninety coaches already that have volunteered to to work with people free of charge like Stacy. Mm-hmm. Um, and we are going to be doing our final training after Sukkot 2021, and hopefully we'll, if this will be available. We're already we already have 15 counselors ready to go now, but hopefully it will be available to anybody um, beginning after Sukkot. That's awesome. I had friends reach out and say, "Hey, how can I get involved?" I say, "Info at livingsmarterjewish.org." There you go. My wife's like, "Hey, can you help me with the take out the garbage?" I say, "Info at livingsmarterjewish.org." <laughs> you know, I just use the uh, email address for everything. So let's quickly talk before we we. Uh, end the recap. Let's talk about season two. Yeah. We had a ton of people submit podcast ideas. People said, hey, they want help with their business, which we did a, an amazing episode recorded with the dean of YU's business school, which is going to drop in season two. We had people say, hey, I want you to interview someone about how money affects marriage. Um, have a marriage therapist on. Hey, I'm a single person. I have a lot of friends. We're in our 20s. What should we do with our money? Should we be doing something different than couples? How should we invest it? Hey, could you have a grocery owner on to talk about if they have people put money on a, uh, their groceries on account and why could we talk about that? Have someone talk about Miser. I think we're going to do an entire episode on Miser and halacha, halacha and also just practical tips. Someone told me that he went into the bank to set up the bank account and he's like, the, the, the non-Jew behind the counter said, oh, let me guess, you're going to also have an account called Maser? <laughs> he goes, yeah, why do you see a lot of that? He goes, yeah, people automate it that whenever money goes into a specific account, 10% of that goes to the other I have account. That. I have that and I also have a debit card just for it. So anytime a Tzedakah organization, like they're, they want some money, great, I have a specific card that I know Perfect. all that money is for Perfect. sure for them and don't have to get it's so Amazing. confusing otherwise yeah we wanted to do an episode during COVID it's a little bit harder but buying a car versus leasing a car mm. right now the entire market is upended because right. um, supply chain supply chain chips and all that so it's not the right time but we're also going to do an episode on buying a home yeah that, Which, that's really important. Oh. I think that was one of the interesting things for me just in general was, you know, you talk about tuition being the the, the point of, of contention in the whole from budgeting thing. Housing prices was, I mean, obviously we know about it, but in other words, it's something that just people feel so strongly about, like the, how much they're paying in their mortgage and, and, and what type of house and how to keep up and what type of neighborhoods. And this has really been the source of a lot of comments. Some of our guests were submitted via the WhatsApp and Yaakov, you can pull up the phone number for it. But I remember. I think I do. I just don't want to get it wrong. 914-222-5513. Nailed it. But if people have suggestions for topics, guest ideas, we, we want to have that. Zevi and I, we spoke with someone last week. That- yeah, really excited to have him on. It was great. Should we say who it is? Yeah, you can go. Uh, Tzvi Piratinsky, yeah, from Lakewood. So we're really excited to have him on. Yes, that's Living L'chaim. Um Submit your ideas. You can email them to info at livingsmarterjewish.org or livinglechaim at 914-222-5513. We also have on the website, people can submit guest ideas. Guest ideas on the website through the form there. We have an Instagram account, Living L'chaim. YouTube has been popping people are people people don't want to listen to the podcast they said they need to see the episodes so they're available they can do both both. yeah we really have like three listeners and they listen (laughs) i don't know if it's a season two thing but the idea to like this it's everything about money so right now like we're trying to lay down the foundations of like okay like our goal is to help people live an easier life with in relations to money so right now it's it's the 
I guess the training wheels kind of, and we're getting a little more nitty gritty in season mm-hmm. two, but I get right. it's season three or four, I don't know, foresee like talking to people who have made it and talking to them about like these successful businessmen. Sure. Not, not necessarily only Yidden, other just sure. people who've made it, you know, well in finances and are have a healthy outlook at life. Obviously, wouldn't have someone who's like, yeah. just no. There's there's a there's a lot to that. I think there's you know first of all in the business side. I went, oh my goodness. I mean, there's yeah. it's literally endless in terms of the value. I think that could be brought to the table with a with with some business focused episodes. And I think a lot of people in our community are going into into business certainly at a higher percentage than the average in the United States. And I think. You know, having a, a real strong parallel business-focused series of episodes is certainly valuable. Yeah, it's going to be great. We spoke about um, with Ned about mentors and how that can help expedite. I love the nugget where, as much as these gemachs help people with giving them money, they also help them by not giving them money. Right. To help them avoid a business where they would end up being fifty thousand, seventy-five thousand dollars in debt. There's so much here. I'm very excited to cover it. Um, we're going to work on Dave Ramsey for season nine. We'll try to get him on there. <laughs> it's a um, shame. But Zev, you came down all the way from Baltimore. We truly appreciate it. Thank it's you so pleasure. much for everything you do behind the scenes. Yaakov as well. Excited about to see Living L'Chaim grow, Living Smarter Jewish grow, um, and Kosher Money, helping people with their personal finances. Yeah, listen, you guys are amazing. It's really been, it's, it's been a pleasure getting to know you over the last uh, few months. You guys are absolute powerhouses, and really this is growing on, on your, both of your backs. I concur. So. No, <laughs> Thanks so much for coming down. Take care. Take care. This podcast has been hosted by my brother, Ellie Langer, produced by me, Yaakov Langer, and brought to you by Living L'Chaim. To check out other podcasts from Living L'Chaim, go to livinglechaim.com. Check out our YouTube channel, Check up Living the Climate Podcast and do your thing. Until next time, enjoy life. Living the Climate.